Good morning. It's good to see all of you. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Jonah chapter 4. We'll actually be reading from Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 to chapter 4 verse 11. Uh, but we're going to be hanging out in Jonah chapter 4. Jeffrey Dahmer was born in 1960. And uh, he grew up seemingly a normal boy doing the same things normal boys tend to do. And in 1978, when he was 18 years old, he started his career as a serial killer. And between 1978, when he was 18, to 1991, when he was 31, he spent basically his entire adult life killing people. By the time he was done, 17 boys and men lay dead, some as young as 14 years old. And what he would do to them as he murdered them and after he murdered them is so heinous, I can't even explain to you what he would do to them from this pulpit. Eventually, um, Jeffrey Dahmer was caught. And he was caught, taken to the police, um, and they interviewed him. And they, there was just a cold, dark person that they interviewed. No regret, certainly no remorse. And they asked him, okay, Jeffrey, why? It's a question on everyone's mind. Why would you do this? Why for so long? And his response is, well, we all evolved anyway. We came from slime and we are going back to slime. Does it really matter how you become slime? That was his response. 17 boys killed. Later on, apparently, Jeffrey Dahmer was saved. Jesus Christ saved him and he put his faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now tell the truth. If you are a mother to, or a father to, or a brother to, or a sister to, or a friend to any of those boys, and you heard that Jeffrey Dahmer got saved, what would your response be? If you're like me, the cynic would be like, aha, I do not buy it. But that's what he said. His, he got saved because the church near the prison would send different members of the church and pastors to explain the gospel to him. And he had the gospel, and God saved him. Later on, he'd share with the pastor that he really struggles whether he should be alive to begin with. Because he recognized that no amount of remorse, no amount of regret would ever bring back those boys and men he killed. And he was genuinely now displaying regret and remorse, something that no one had seen before. The same guys who interviewed him were like, this is someone else. The, the guy we interviewed and this guy is not the same person. Later on, uh, a different inmate tried to kill him, got a, a blade and pushed it through his throat, but it didn't go through. The blade broke. And Jeffrey Dahmer said that the reason that happened is because of the great grace and saving power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Later on, unfortunately, a different inmate managed to kill him, and in 1994, he died. So again, tell the truth. You had that Jeffrey Dahmer was killed, and you are the parent or friend or family of one of those 17 boys, what's your reaction? Happy? Maybe angry? Maybe very angry? Because the thought that a serial killer would be saved and end up in God's heaven is unacceptable to you. Right? The thought that Jeffrey Dahmer could be in heaven 
right now is too much to stomach. It would be for you such a low God with such a low view of justice. What about the 17 boys? What about their families? What about their loved ones? That's kind of the situation Jonah found himself in. He came face to face with a God who was that compassionate and he couldn't stomach it. He knew with his head, theoretically, of a compassionate God, but when he actually had to face this God, meet with this God, see this God's compassion at work, it was unacceptable to him. And what I'm hoping that I leave us with today, myself first on that line, is the knowledge that we can trust this God who is absolutely compassionate and gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. So, Jonah chapter 3, from verse 10, we'll read chapter 4, verse 11. I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under, in it, under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. And should I not, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so now, Lord, what you do not have, please give us through your word. 
what we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Quick recap. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. And in chapter 1, he said, ah, I'm not going to do that. And he decided to flee to a place called Tarshish. God made sure that wouldn't happen. Held a great wind and a great storm on the ship. They threw him overboard. Even then, Jonah didn't die. A fish was sent to swallow him. And after three days, he prayed to God. And that fish vomited him on dry land in Nineveh. Eventually, he preaches at Nineveh. And a disaster in Jonah's mind happens. There's such a great repentance in Nineveh. The whole city. Literally, this is the greatest repentance in the Old Testament. The repentance of the king can only be rivaled by King David's own repentance. The whole city repents. And God, who had earlier promised to destroy Nineveh, now relents. They repent, God relents. What's Jonah's reaction to that? He was displeased. It's a little pattern I want you to see as we go along. Something is happening in Jonah's heart, and then something happens in Jonah's head, and then something happens with Jonah's feet. Or put differently, something is going on in Jonah's heart, and he starts thinking about it, and eventually what his heart is doing and his mind is thinking about, his feet eventually follow and act upon. Heart, mind, feet. So Jonah was, chapter 4 verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly in Jonah's sight. This was not just wrong. The, the word used there means it was evil. It was almost sinful to Jonah. God was being bad. This was wrong of God to say Nineveh. It displeased him exceedingly and he was angry. This is the word that is most used to define Jonah throughout this chapter. Okay, so every time you see the word angry, yell it out. Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was... Well done. Chapter 4, verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be... Chapter 4, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you, well, do, you do well to be... For the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be... Comma. Angry enough to die. Right? This is the thing Jonah is, extremely angry. The only other person who has been talked of being angry in this book is God. And his fierce anger has been relented. God's fierce anger relented. Jonah's, Jonah's fierce anger showed up in full force. He is angry. And then it says in verse 2, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed. Now let's give credit where credit is due. At least Jonah has the good sense to pray when he's angry. At least Jonah has the good sense to turn his anger into a prayer. At least Jonah understands that even when he's angry, he can speak to God. Better he speaks to God who can handle his anger and bewilderment and confusion than speak to someone and say words that that person will never be able to recover from. And oh, how we can be helped. If in our anger, we speak to God instead of speaking to others. How we can be helped, helped if we turn our anger into prayer. Because God can handle it. 
you read through the Psalms, you read through Jeremiah, you read through an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, Psalm 88, Psalm 89, they take all that pain and anger and drive it right to God. John has the good sense to pray when he's angry. And we can turn our fierce anger into fervent prayer. Whether it is righteous anger that we turn into prayer, righteous anger because of real injustice, a policeman mistreated you on the street. Whether it is petty anger, your husband didn't do the dishes again. Whether it is selfish anger, like what you're about to see Jonah do. We can take that anger and drive it to the throne of God. But that's about the only positive thing I can say about Jonah. From here on out, pretty much everything goes badly. Everything else I'm going to say about him is really negative. So he prays, yay. And in his prayer, what does he do? He justifies his disobedience. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He's actually justifying his disobedience to the guy who commanded him. He's angry. And as you will see very soon, it's, it's like he's just, he's not thinking straight. He talks about things like, this is why I left when I was in my country. And Jonah was going to pause there and ask Jonah, Jonah, really? Your country? Huh. Okay, so God created a people through Abraham. God gave these people deliverance out of slavery in Israel. God gave these people a land and law through Moses. God gave these people a king through David. God gave them prophets to enforce the law. But now this is your country? He doesn't just mean it territorially. I am from country X. It's like, this is mine. And you start smelling a little bit of his nationalism and his prejudice and his partiality come out. His heart is angry. And he finds a way for his mind to justify that anger. He finds a way for his mind to explain to himself and to God, apparently, why what he's doing is right. Look at what he does with his mind. He said, I knew this about you, God. Jonah knows God. His theology is rock solid. I knew you were a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knows. Big brain, small heart. Lots of theology, little love. Actually, no love. Big head, tiny little rock solid heart. And how might you and I be tempted to be the same? To know about God and be theological giants, yet spiritual infants. To have a library on prayer in our houses. But we can't quite remember the last time we prayed for anything other than ourselves. To have a book on Christian parenting and Christian living. But our kids know every time mom walks out of the room, dad is like, there she goes again, nagging me about something. And every time he walks out of the room, she complains about him. How might we be tempted to know a lot about God? To have perfect understanding of the gospel that we never share. To have a very clear understanding of what the church is 
the body of Christ, the family of God, and then stiff arm fellow members of the church and never be vulnerable with them and isolate ourselves in our little enclaves. To have a good understanding of the image of God from womb to tomb, every person, every gender, male, female, black, white, regardless of where they're from, all image bearers of God, especially if they're recreated in the image of Christ, but we'd rather just hang out with our own people. Sound like us, talk like us, are like us. You and I have a million ways of doing this, of knowing not being. And that's Jonah's issue. He knew about this God, but he didn't know about this God. The knowledge in his head hadn't sunk those nine inches from his head to his heart. And look at what Jonah knows. I knew you're a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Let's unpack each of those things for a little bit. He's a gracious God. The word translated gracious here is only used of God. It speaks of a God who extends good and does good to people who do not deserve it. He's a merciful God. This word is also only ever used of God. And it kind of sounds like the word for womb. <laughs> Say God is merciful is pointing to the God who nurtures, who doesn't give up on wayward children, who does not treat them as their sins deserve. He's slow to anger, which is the exact opposite of being quick to anger, which is what Jonah is. It's the exact opposite of having a quick temper. It is forbearing. It is sticking around despite the sin, despite the mess. This God is a God of love, not just any kind of love, but covenantal love. The kind of love that holds your hand and says, I will never give up on you as an act of my will. I am yours, no matter hell or high water. I am yours. Marriage is an illustration of this. And often we tell young people when they're getting married, your love has brought you to the point of making this covenant. But from this day on, your covenant is what will sustain your love, not the other way around. You hold on, no matter what. And he's a God who is relenting. Nineveh is a physical demonstration of a God who relents from his wrath because he's gracious and merciful and slow to anger. If they would repent, he would relent. This phrase, this line right here, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, this is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. It's sometimes called the character creed. It first shows up in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And when the Lord showed up to show him, this is what he said, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving the iniquities of those who sin and relenting from disaster. And then it shows up over and over in Numbers chapter 14, Nehemiah chapter 9, Psalm 86, Psalm 103. In fact, in Psalm 105, from verse 8 to 9, it doesn't just say that he is good. It says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Listen, the Lord is good to all, Jonah, not just you and the Jews. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Jonah knows this, and that is his big problem with God. Jonah's problem with God is God. Jonah's problem with God is that he is that compassionate. 
Which is why he starts sounding very inconsistent. Think about it. He says, after God, because I knew who this is who you are, the God of love and relenting from disaster, verse 3. Therefore now, because of who you are, God, oh Lord, please take my life from me. Huh? For it is better for me to die than to live. Huh? What? <laughs> God, you're good, so kill me. Okay. Jonah, I know you're mad, but are you hearing yourself? Yes. Jonah's problem is he would rather die than see God be that to the Ninevites. So he might sound inconsistent, but actually, this is consistent of Jonah. Remember chapter 1? People are dying. The, the winds and the waves are about to tear the ship. Jonah is like, throw me overboard. Now, it's easy to read that and think, oh, Jonah is such a nice guy. He wants them to live. No, Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh. Jonah, you'll die if we throw you overboard. Throw, you, throw me overboard. You might be eaten by a fish. It's fine. Throw me overboard. I am not going to Nineveh. I would rather die a painful drowning death than see one of those guys come to God. Not going to happen. Chapter 2, it took him three days to pray. How long do you have to be in the inside of a fish to pray? Three days. A part of me thinks he was almost there like, just let me die on day two. Maybe this is the day I'll die. Then he eventually prays. Spat out in chapter three, gives this reluctant sermon, and the disaster happens. Nineveh repents. And his response, kill me now. Just kill me now. And before we are too harsh on Jonah, imagine if you were a Jew in the Auschwitz concentration camps in 1944. And by God's grace, you somehow managed to escape the, the camp. And God tells you, hey, go to Berlin, go to Hitler's doorstep, tell him and the entire Third Reich, the government of the day, the Nazi government of the day, that God is going to destroy you. And you're thinking, yeah, they'll probably kill me, but let's go. I want these guys to know they're going to die. You show up at the door. Hey, hey, shoot the stopper, guys. Third Reich. God's going to destroy you. And they walk out, tear their clothes, fall on the ground, and call on the Jewish God, have mercy on us. Hitler steps off his throne, rips out his swastika, tears his garments, and says, God, have mercy on me. What are you thinking? Oh, praise the Lord, he got saved. You're thinking, no, no, no. Six million guys are still dead. God killed them. You said you destroy them, destroy them. These guys have ripped apart my families. I've watched them skin people alive. Kill them. But he has repented. I don't care. Kill them. Right? That's Jonah. The Assyrians tore through his home, killed his friends, killed his relatives for sport. And now you're saving them? What am I supposed to do with that God? Clap? can be hard on Jonah, but we are Jonah. And Jonah is mad, understandably, and in his head, he's trying to justify his understandable anger. So the flow of God's, rather the flow of Jonah's heart and mind is interrupted by God, and God asks him a question. God asks, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Now, 
when an omniscient God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. When I ask a question, I genuinely don't know. How does Fiji keep beating Kenya in rugby? I don't know. It's a genuine question. But when God asked Jonah, Jonah, why are you so angry? He's trying to help Jonah take a trip into Jonah's mind and into Jonah's heart. He wants Jonah to see Jonah through the lens of God's word. He needs Jonah to start thinking straight. Because Jonah is so angry that he thinks God being good is bad. He's not thinking straight. It's almost like he's asking Jonah, okay, Jonah, you want me to be something other than good? You want me to be something other than slow to anger and patient and merciful and gracious? Jonah, who has been the biggest recipient of my mercy and grace and slowness to anger in this whole book? Who? Jonah! Jonah, if you want me to change, you wouldn't be breathing. Right? Jonah wants God to be his God. He wants him to be Yahweh for me, not Yahweh or, or God for them. Jonah, didn't you pray in chapter 2, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation comes from our God and he will save whomever he will save. Okay, I'll save the Ninevites. No, not them. I meant anyone else but them. Jonah, you're the one who prayed. Save whomever you want. I've just answered that prayer. Jonah, why are you so angry? And we start realizing it's not just Jonah's thinking that's a problem. God goes deeper than his mind. He goes right for the heart. He always goes right for the heart. Because Jonah's anger is an indicator that there's an idol hanging around in his heart. In chapter 2, verse 8, Jonah prayed pray that those who pay vain regard to idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's what he's doing right now. Our emotions are kind of like smoke and fire. Where there is smoke, there is fire. Follow the smoke and you will find the fire. Follow Jonah's anger and you will find the fire of his idolatry at the incense altar of nationalism. I am a Hebrew. Those are the first words out of his mouth. When I was in my country, he despises those guys because they are not us. He despises those guys. How dare they have a God like ours? What he doesn't realize is God is not just his God. God is God. And he is the way he is with everyone, regardless. He is Yahweh for them, and he's going to be Yahweh for the Ninevites. So here's Jonah, idolizing his people. And those emotions are beginning to expose his idol, and his idol is being crushed. Jonah, you and I are different. Jonah, I don't exist to serve your agenda. Because Jonah is perfectly happy with God being God as long as he's God on his terms. Be God for us, be God for me, be God for the Jews. When God steps out of that box, Jonah loses it. Right? And God is like, Jonah, I'm not going to fit into your box. And God stubbornly never does. So, what causes anger in you and in me? Because if you follow the smell of that smoke long enough, you'll come to a fire of idolatry. Do you get angry when you don't get that promotion that you've been waiting for for a long time at work? There's a possibility that you've idolized that promotion. 
Do you get completely depressed when the boyfriend you hoped would ask you out doesn't ask you out? Hmm. You might have elevated that person to God's status. Because that's all an idol is, right? It is wanting anything more than God, loving anything more than God, and deriving our identity from something other than God. That's Jonah. He derives his identity from, I'm a Hebrew, not I belong to the Lord. So your depression might be triggered by an identity that is being derived from someplace other than God's word. My depression. What is it that if it happens during the week, I am denied of happiness and you have to scrape me off the floor with a spatula? When I had been planning my business and I didn't make as much money this year as I made last year and now I can't roll with the big boys or roll with the big girls and now my life is worthless and I'm angry and depressed, follow that. Because I might just be unintentionally worshipping at the altar of success. And this is not even something people in ministry are, are you know, immune to. Ministry is a great place for the people with the idol of success to come and hide. All of us are susceptible to this. Because as one pastor put it, the human heart is an idol factory. If it can love something or want something, anything more than God, it will find a way of doing it. Prone to wander. That's why we sing it. Question, what have you worked hardest to gain in your life? Because what, whatever that is, there might just be an idol hanging around under that. Last one, what makes you really bitter? Who is it you feel you cannot forgive? There was no way Jonah was forgiving the Ninevites. So who is it you feel you can't forgive? Because whoever that is, or whoever people that is, they have a hold on your heart. A kind of hold that only God should have. And what forgiveness was designed to do is not just glorify God, but release you and I to a new life of freedom, unfettered by that kind of pain and chokehold. God wants to put out all the fires of my idols and your idols so that we respond to him and him alone for our identity, for our desires, for our wants. Jonah's heart has made his head basically lose it and start trying to rationalize things that can't be rationalized. And unsurprisingly, his feet follow. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city. Now, pick up on a little progression here. You will keep seeing Jonah go out. First he goes out, then he goes east, then he goes to a booth. So Jonah goes out of the city. What just happened in the city? Revival happened in the city. God's activity was there. What does Jonah do? He goes out. One degree removed from wherever God is. Then he goes east. Now, that language of going east was both, yes, directional, but also, in the Hebrew mind, often going east reminded them of what happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven out through the east, and a cherubim guarded the way back from the east. They had moved away from the presence of God. And here is Jonah recapitulating that in a sense. In, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, Cain does the same thing. After he's driven out, he goes east. Jonah moves out from where God is, moves east, further away from God, and then he makes a booth. <laughs> Booths were just basically like twigs that you put together and put some leaves. They were the kind of common thing that Israel used to make when they were wandering in the wilderness. 
and they were wandering in the wilderness because they had disobeyed God and moved away from God. This is a picture of Jonah moving further and further away from God. And he makes this booth for himself. There's a self-centeredness about him. This is what I said when I was in my country. I knew. Are you angry? I am angry. Angry enough to die. It's all about him. Which is not surprising that he's angry. Because love tends to be grieved and selfishness tends to be angered. Jonah is angry. He makes this booth. He sits out there from the east. And then, scripture says, he starts to see what would happen. See what would become of the city. Can you imagine what he was thinking? After every minute, he's like, maybe the fire will come now. No, maybe it'll be an earthquake. Okay, God just sent locusts. Every minute, he's just rehearsing his resentment. He's like, yeah, especially that guy I met at the corner office. I really want that guy dead. Just keeps rehearsing his resentment. And he's being consumed by his anger. Seizing. Jonah doesn't know that the anger of man does not bring about the justice of God. It's okay that you want justice, Jonah. Your anger is not going to bring it about, James 1.20 would say. He's consumed by this rage. He's rehearsing his resentment. He's going further and further away from God, and he's letting his anger do it. He's self-absorbed. How could they do that to me? How could God do that to me? So where are you and I moving further and further away from God? Where did you rage this past week? What caused that? Ugh. Where might you have been rehearsing your resentment and avoiding someone who you want nothing to do with, who maybe you've not forgiven and now it's becoming bitterness? And maybe you don't think about it because you left them back home, so it's really distance that's doing the work, not forgiveness that's doing the work. What is it that's taking you further and further and further away from God? Could it be that you're isolating yourself from people who will speak God's truth to your life? People who will ask you, hey, genuinely, have you read your Bible this week? Have you managed to pray this week? How are you doing with treating your co-workers? The kind of questions you don't want to be asked because you just don't want God to be up in your face. I don't want God to be up in my face. Jonah moves further and further and further away. And his feet are now rushing to evil. Look at the interesting response that God has. So Jonah went and sat east, makes his booth, and then verse 6 says, now God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort? Really? So two things. First of all, God asked Jonah a question. What did Jonah do? He walked away. Okay, I don't know about you guys. If I tried that stunt with my mother, she asks me a question, I'm like, mm, and I walk away. What would follow is a sound effect. Bam! One of those that you're hitting the ear and you're just like, Ooh, for like the rest of the day. You walked away? <laughs> this guy was asked a question by Almighty God, and he walked away. One of the great mysteries of Jonah chapter 4 is it doesn't end there. And, and God asked him a question, and Jonah went out of the city, and God stopped his heart. It's, I, like, I don't know how this guy is still standing. 
Not only does he walk away from God, when he gets to this wilderness, what does God do? Create a shade for him. To save him from his discomfort. Again, if I tried that stunt with my mom, on the very unlikely, unlikely event that I turned away and she somehow didn't smack me, and I got to my room and I slammed the door, the next day, there would be no door. Oh, you want privacy? Have it, have it. All the privacy you want, have it. You're slamming my door. I'll just remove it for you. What does God do? This rebellious, rude child who's supposed to be a prophet walks away from him, throws a tantrum, slams the door, if you will. God's response? Cover him. Child of God, do you know God actually cares about your discomfort? That in the mess that you are, with all the tantrums you throw, with all the junk you bring to your life, and the sin and silliness and folly that you and I bring to our lives, God's desire is to cover you. That he may save you from your comfort. Jonah doesn't get it yet. But what we are seeing is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in compassion. A God whose name sounds like a womb. He's nurturing, caring for this silly child. He will not give up on his child. So Jonah throws his tantrum. God gives him a shade. And scripture says, Verse 4, I mean uh, verse 6, the second part. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This guy is about as stable as a wave. Two minutes ago, he was exceedingly mad because of Nineveh. Now he's exceedingly glad because of a plant. It's, you can't trust this guy with anything. He's double-minded. He's not stable here. The plant shows up, but in the dawn, God appoints a worm that attacks the plant. Now look at the sovereignty of God all over this chapter. In verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant. Verse 7, the Lord God appointed a worm. Verse 8, the Lord God appointed a scorching east wind. Did you catch it? What's the, the word being repeated? God appointed, God appointed, God appointed. God's in charge here. And Jonah can't stand that. <laughs> God appointed the waves that messed up the boat. God appointed the wind that forced them to throw him over the boat. God appointed the fish to swallow him. God appointed the fish to vomit him on dry land. God appointed the Ninevites to be saved. That was God's decision. God appointed the worm. God appointed the wind. God appointed the shit. Do you see it? God is in charge of the universe. He's in charge of nature. He's in charge of salvation. It's Acts 13, 48. That after the Gentiles heard Paul preach, they glorified the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life Believed. God's in charge. Literally, salvation belongs to the Lord. It comes from him. And here is Jonah, happy when God is merciful and kind. And then God decides, okay, you've seen one side. Let me let you experience a little bit of the judgment you are hoping happens to them. See, God knows his child, right? And he knows some pressure needs to be applied here in the hope that Jonah will get it. So, you, you know like those steel bars that sometimes they use for construction? If I get a big, strong, buff guy like Jay, and Jay folds 
the bar and holds it together, what will happen if he lets go? It will go back to original position, right? What happens if you want to make that thing fold permanently? What do you do? Get a blowtorch, right? Apply some heat right there in the middle so that when you fold it, it stays bent. Even the hardship God sends Jonah's way are in a bid to help him bend to the word of God and conform to the image of God. The pressure of the whale didn't work because the minute God let go, he went back to original default settings. I didn't want to go to begin with. So God applies some pressure. He sends a scorching east wind. First he sends a worm to attack that plant and it withers. Then sends a scorching east wind. That phrase east wind is also important because often in the Bible, judgment came from the east wind. In Exodus, when God sent an east wind, it came with locusts. In the Psalms, it is the east wind from God that destroys the ships of Tarshish that is meant for the enemies of God's people. Now this east wind is coming at who? Jonah. Experience a little bit of the judgment you so badly want to see those people have. And that worm that attacks the plant and makes it wither, God's sovereign over that. The sun is now beating over Jonah's head. This event was happening in this region. So if you want to know what it feels like to be Jonah, just go out to the desert with nothing. Wait for August when it's like 52 degrees, 53 degrees. That's what's happening to Jonah. So when scripture says he was faint, it means he was almost dying. And then God shows up and asks another question. But before that, Jonah says, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? In classic Jonah fashion, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. The hardships that God is sending Jonah's way are not punitive. They're formative. God will use whatever he must to help his children become like him and have the right priorities, which is God himself. Child of God, that means your suffering is not pointless. That also means you know where your hardships and suffering are coming from? God. It's God who appoints these things to happen. And I'm not saying they're easy. Do not hear me say that. Do not hear me say that you have it all figured out. But you serve a God who says all things, all good things and all bad things are working together for your good. Whether in this life or the next the only reason God sends those hardships is for your own good and his own glory. You and I are the only people in the world who can say that. Because suffering outside Christ is kind of senseless. It doesn't make us more like Christ. It doesn't make us to, to be the thing God first designed us to be. But a child in God's hands, nothing happens to that child without the father filtering it through. It comes through him. It's for his good. And for God's glory. Do we always understand that at the time? No. I don't know why people get cancer. I don't know why they die young. I don't know why they lose jobs. I don't know all of that. But I know if they're in Christ's hands, they are never wasted. Jonah wasn't yet there. But that's where God is trying to push him. And they asked him this question, Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
in his heart work, God is still trying to show Jonah there's a difference between you and me. So follow along from verse 10. Jonah has just said, I'm angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said to him, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. In other words, Jonah, you're pitying something that you had nothing to do with. You're invested in a thing that was given to you. Verse 11. And should I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000, not just people, persons, who do not know their right hand from their left. Jonah, you care about plants. I care about people. Jonah, you care about plants that come like this and go like this. I care about people who have a whole lifespan to live before me. Jonah, you're concerned about a plant? There are 120,000 persons. Jonah just saw a morass, a mass of Ninevites. God saw 120,000 individuals, people made in his image. He knows what they're going through. He knows where they're struggling. He knows where they're happy. They are persons to him. They bear his image. He's concerned about that. Jonah, you care about plants. Don't you see these people don't even know their right hand from their left? That phrase is, is like what a child does. They are ignorant. They don't know me. Of course they built a tyrannical empire based on their base desires. Jonah, I have pity on people. And that word pity, by the way, directly translated, means to have tears in one's eyes. God has tears in his eyes for his image bearers who don't know him and are living wasteless lives because they don't know him. Jonah, you care about a plant that a worm destroyed. That image of a plant being destroyed by a worm, by the way, it's a picture of what happens to all of us with time. We all just decay. It's the fact of the matter. Young, strong men with your big chest at age 25. Give it enough time, gravity will slowly push that chest into your stomach. <laughs> and there's very little you can do about it. Ladies with your soft, supple skin. The day is coming when your grandchildren will be like, Grandma, I like your crocodile boots. And you're like, I'm barefoot. What, what, what? It's called decay. It happens to all of us. And at some point, all of us will be worm food. Jonah, before the Ninevites are worm food, I have tears in my eyes for them. I want them to know me, Jonah. Oh, and by the way, Jonah, I have tears in my eyes for you. I want you to not just know me with your head, but know me from your heart. Rend your heart, not just your head, Jonah. And this is where the rubber meets the road. For you and I, who have friends and colleagues, family members, who are living wasteful, useless, pointless lives, and we see them striving for something, in the, in the words of Acts 17, they're groping in the dark. They don't know their left from their right. They don't know what they're doing. They're searching for something. And you and I know this God. We have the brilliant opportunity not to be like Jonah, but to be like Jesus, who didn't run away from his enemies, but ran toward them, who knew that they were walking in darkness and showed them the light 
who spoke to them of the gospel, that the light of the glory of God would shine in their hearts and they would have new, changed hearts. And unbelieving friend, you who doesn't identify as a Christian, you who maybe is exploring Christianity, you don't know what this whole Jesus thing is about, this is you we are talking to. You are deserving of all of God's wrath. You are the Ninevites in chapter 3. God is angry with you because you have sinned against him and the wages of sin is death. What he owes you is eternal anger. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and was crucified. Why was he crucified? Because the wages of sin is death. And he was dying on your behalf, taking on your punishment, taking on your sin. And in that moment, his blood paid the price for your sin because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the only blood God would accept was his. And he died rose three days later, ascended to the right hand of the Father and offers you through his church this gift of eternal life that if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Come to him. Come to a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and will not visit you with eternal punishment. The men of Nineveh, Jesus said, repented of the preaching of Jonah. But now, you are hearing Jesus Christ say, come to me, you who is weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And church, that's our privilege. Angels would drop their wings to do what we do. Angels would give up their wings to tell someone else about this gospel. The question you and I have to deal with as we close is, one, will we lay our hearts bare before God? Because you see, when we don't share the gospel, we don't have an evangelism problem. We have a love problem. Our hearts are a little more akin to Jonah's than they should be to Jesus' heart. Because when you and I love someone, oh, we will tell them. But will we lay our hearts bare before God and say, okay, God, here's, a, here's me. This is where I am. Here are the stony parts. Here are my weird emotions. Here's my junk. Knowing that when we do that, we are not going to meet a God who will embarrass us but he'll be gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will never give up on you with all your heart's junk. He will forever love you. The second question, will we lay ourselves bare to one another? The reason God gave us a church is so that you would ask me and I would ask you those hard questions like, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? And not isolate myself from that and say, yeah, I've not shared it with anyone in like six months, man. And even that six months ago, it was really kind of lame. Will we expose a person or a people or an ethnicity that we, like Jonah, are prejudiced against? Just don't think about them. We're happy to share the gospel with other people, but not these guys or not this guy. A couple of years ago when I was actually preaching through Jonah, I was considering being a missionary to Somalia. And I, was, I went to the coast of Kenya and was talking to some friends and I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about you know, being a missionary to Somalia. And they looked at me like I had three heads. They're like, how would you do that? That place is dangerous. Those people are weird. They're nasty. 
And I'm like, uh? Now, I don't think those people were evil. In fact, I know they are born again. But they were harboring a prejudice against a people group that they weren't even aware of. And it came out in a question. Could there be a people like that, or a person like that, that we are just going, not you? And lastly, will we commit to share the gospel with someone, with anyone, moved by a heart that has pity, tears in our eyes for those who don't know him, that they too may come in. That's why the hymn we sang said, pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Because we are just like the Ninevites. We were just like the Ninevites. And just like the Germans. And just like the Kenyans. And just like anyone who has sinned against God. And we can confidently tell them there is a fountain filled with blood. Yes, you are guilty, but there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast, immovable, unshakable covenant love for those who would turn away from their sin and trust in you, in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, this week, would you help us expose places where we have been idolatrous, places where our anger or bitterness or displeasure has acted like smoke, indicating a fire of idolatry. And Lord, you help us be bare before not just you, but before each other, that we may help each other destroy those idols. And Holy Father, would you send us to our friends and to our family who don't know you, with tears in our eyes, that they may come to you, the gracious, merciful God, who is slow to anger and abounding in love, relenting from disaster. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.